Martin Luther King never wanted to be a civil rights leader. A rising star in his denomination, the 25-year-old seminary graduate began a hopeful pastorate in Montgomery, Alabama at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church while finishing his Ph.D. And he soon found himself leading the Montgomery bus boycotts. Hundreds of death threats followed. And one winter evening in 1957, a voice uh, appeared on the phone and uh, said that a bomb was going to come and kill his wife and daughter that evening. Kink went, went to the kitchen, poured a cup of coffee, buried his face in his hands, and he began to pray. He said, Lord, I'm trying down here to do what's right, but I'm losing my courage. And he later explained what happened next. He said, I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for truth, stand up for justice, stand up for righteousness. Well, three days later, a bomb did explode on his front porch, but he had already responded to God's call, and he never looked back. God uses reluctant leaders to confront injustice. That's one of the great themes of the book of Exodus. God calls Moses, one of the most reluctant leaders of all time, to confront the injustice of Egypt. And last week, we kind of introduced the book and gave a little bit of an overview. Exodus is one of the pivotal books in the whole Bible. It shares the founding event of the whole Christian story. And this week in chapter 3 through 6, and I encourage you to read along with us in the newsletter, we tell you what texts we're going to be going through because we can't read them all at Sunday night. We look at Moses' call. Before we look at the call, I want to talk just a little bit more about the setting of the call, the historical setting. Egypt at that time was one of the most powerful economies and empires in the world. And it had developed a very prosperous uh, uh, way of being a country. And it, it worked like this. There were a few people at the top who ran the state. And essentially, everyone in the state uh, was a slave of the state. All property was the state's. And so it wasn't just the Israelites who were slaves, but every peasant in Egypt eventually had to pay rent to use the state's land. And Pharaoh could order you at any time to stop farming to go build a pyramid or a dike or something like that. And so what happened was uh, the inner circle got very rich and everybody else was in grinding poverty. And, and Pharaoh uses slave labor to build his empire. Chapter 1, verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. These cities became massive urban centers where food and weapons were stored. They became really central to Egypt's national security. And they were all built by slave labor. So in, verse, in chapter 5, Moses will go to Pharaoh and ask to have three days to go out and, and worship. 
And we read, the king of Egypt said, why do you take the people away from their work? You are lazy, and that is why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. And then he doubles their production quotas. He can't let them go because it would mess up uh, the productivity of uh, the slave labor, and the whole economic system would collapse. And so he puts into place a culture of death to keep the machinery of the slave economy running. He calls the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby boys. Then later he calls for all Hebrew boys to be drowned in the Nile. And then what's also interesting to note is that this culture of death is wedded to religion. Uh, The Pharaoh was seen as a god. The Nile was seen as a god. Religion was woven all throughout uh, the power of the pharaoh. So you have, you have this uh, economic system that's built on slavery. You have uh, God who's wrapped up in the middle of all of it. And you have a culture of death. And Pharaoh needs the Israelite slaves to feed the economic beast that he's created. So the people eventually cry out. The last First, we looked at last week. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up from God, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so in chapter 3 through chapter 6, we see God calling a reluctant leader to confront injustice. So we'll just read chapter 3, 1 through 10 as the heart of the call. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why, the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, before we see how our hero responds to the call, just a couple of observations about the call itself. Moses, the text will say, is 80, and he has demonstrated very little leadership capacity thus far. He has demonstrated compassion. And God promises to redeem or deliver or save Israel. All those words kind of come up. 
And notice that the salvation, there's two parts to it. There will be a spiritual salvation, a big part of the book of Exodus. The whole second half is about building the tabernacle. It's about God's presence coming to dwell with the people of God. It's about what it's like to know and worship God personally. So part of the redemption is spiritual, dealing with the soul. But there's also an economic aspect to the redemption. Because God says, I'm going to take you to a land of milk and honey. And that was shorthand for, I know you don't have jobs now. You don't own anything. You can't make your way. I'm going to give you a a way to make a living. I'm going to create economic viability for you so that you you can flourish. And I think that's important because... The New Testament's understanding of salvation draws on the Old Testament definition of salvation. And the Old Testament way of thinking about God's saving work includes both saving our souls, but also redemption of of even economic capacity and giving people land of milk and honey, a way to make a living. Third... Well, this is one of the great calling stories in scriptures. Callings don't have to include a burning bush. Uh, Martin Luther King actually responded to a letter. Somebody said, did you have a burning bush experience? And he said, my call to the ministry was neither dramatic nor spectacular. It came neither by some miraculous vision nor by some blinding light experience on the road of life. Moreover, it did not come as a sudden realization Rather, it was a response to an inner urge that gradually came upon me. This urge expressed itself in a desire to serve God and humanity and the feeling that my talent and my commitment could best be expressed through the ministry. Well, Moses will soon show himself to be a reluctant leader after this encounter, uh, essentially in the backside of Saudi Arabia. And no less than eight times, he says, no, (laughs) I'm not going to do this. Here's uh, the first listing. We'll look at that here. He says, who am I that I should go? Well, what am I going to say? They won't believe me. I'm not eloquent. Send somebody else. Why'd you ever send me? The people of Israel haven't listened. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, God responds like this. To the first question, Moses has legitimate self-doubt. And it's interesting. He's a very insecure leader. And we don't know why, but he he committed a, you know, he murdered someone 40 years earlier. And he, he became a very angry reformer too early in his life. And you get the feeling that he just had no confidence in his leadership at all. And God says, it's all right, I'll I'll be with you. Then God asks Moses to confront Pharaoh and demand that his people be released. And he wants to know, what what shall I say? (laughs) And again, we're familiar with the story, but that's a very good question. Essentially, he's asking this community of thousands to to rebel, to revolt, to to leave at the risk of their lives. And so, what is he going to say? God says, a great, interesting answer. He says, I'll be whom I will be. I am who I am. 
I'll be faithful to you. This is my character. I'm not going to let you down. And then God promises to do three signs and wonders for Moses to authenticate his calling. He's going to turn his rod into a snake. And that was significant because the Pharaoh wore a snake on his headdress and it was a divine symbol of power and authority. And God says, you know, they think that's pretty cool, but I'm going to, I'm going to allow you to turn a, a rod into a snake and back again. And then he says that he's going to flick the skin on Moses' hand and then heal it. And that foreshadows God's ability to inflict plagues and heal them. And then he says he's going to turn water into blood. And that shows God's total control of the Nile, which was one of Egypt's gods, the main source of Egypt's prosperity. So he's going to give them signs. And Moses says, I'm not eloquent. Now, this is interesting because remember, Moses grew up in the king's house, right? So he went... He went to Harvard, okay? So, so the, <laughs> this is a bright guy with the best training. And, and God says, I want you to do this. And he says, I, I stutter. I, I don't talk well. And I've never, I don't know whether he really was not eloquent or he just had so beat himself up over his mistakes that he just had convinced himself that he didn't have gifts. Have you done that? You really do have these gifts, but you've made mistakes. You've spent a little too long on the backside of the desert. And so you think, I, I can't do that. And then one of the great lines of scripture in response to the command and call of God, <laughs> send somebody else. <laughs> I don't want to do this. And he says, I'll give you Aaron. And by the way, you may not be a Moses, but you may be an Aaron. Aaron's are so important. I can't think of a, a great leader that doesn't have an Aaron. Anybody that is trying to confront injustice needs an Aaron. Why did you ever send me? I'm the Lord. I'll bring you out. The people of Israel have not listened, he says. Still want you to go. How will Pharaoh listen? And this is a very interesting end of the conversation. God says, I still want you to go. But when you go, I'm going to harden his heart. Now, how about that? After all this dialogue, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. You can do it, you can do it. I'll be with you, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. And by the way, when you do go, <laughs> you're going to fail. Now get on with it. <laughs> I think that is such an important leadership lesson. That just because you have a calling to do something doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's probably going to be really, really hard. Every calling will face opposition. Well, the book of Exodus is about God rescuing his people from Egypt. And it reveals the shape of redemption, how God works in the world. But what Exodus doesn't do, and this is kind of how I want to end, what Exodus doesn't do is tell us how to do it. 
And one of the things that I think it's important for us to keep in mind is that when God's people respond to God's call to do anything but to confront injustice, they may choose to do it in very different ways, and we shouldn't judge each other by how you decide to do it. Uh, I'm reading a fascinating book right, right now um, uh, on Exodus in the interpretation of the African-American church. And it goes back and it looks at how preachers have dealt with Exodus uh, all the way from the beginning of, of slavery. And I wanted to, to end with, with, with a couple of readings from two very powerful sermons. Reverend Absalom Jones grew up in Philadelphia about the time of the Revolutionary War. He was a slave, bought his freedom, and he became the pastor of the African Episcopal Church. And his most famous sermon, it's one of the most famous sermons in American history, it's called the Thanksgiving Sermon, was from Exodus 3, verse 7, which is, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their cry and have come down to deliver them. Now, this man has been saturated by the book of Exodus, and the conclusion he comes to in 1808 in Philadelphia was, be patient. Live a virtuous life to show what we can do. Wait for God to free us through means like the government. Hang on. Don't get into trouble. Just keep going. That's what he saw in the text. And so uh, I'm just going to read uh, a portion of, a, of the sermon. If you can imagine, it's January 1808 uh, in Philadelphia. Just imagine the sanctuary full of, full of the people. has seen the affliction of our countrymen with an eye of pity. Remember, most blacks in America were in slavery at the time. He has seen the wicked arts by which wars have been fomented among the different tribes of the Africans in order to procure captives for the purpose of selling them for slaves. He has seen ships fitted out from different ports in Europe and America, freighted with trinkets to be exchanged for the bodies and souls of men. He has seen the anguish which has taken place when parents have been torn from their children and children from their parents and conveyed with their hands and feet bound in fetters on board of ships prepared to receive them. He has seen them thrust in crowds into the holds of those ships where many of them have perished from the want of air. He has seen such of them as have escaped from that noxious place of confinement leap into the ocean with a faint hope of swimming back to their native shore or a determination to seek early retreat from their impending misery in a watery grave. He has seen them exposed for sale like horses and cattle upon the wharves or like bales of goods in warehouses of West India and American seaports. He has seen the pangs of separation between members of the same family. He has seen them driven into the sugar, the rice, the tobacco fields, compelled to work in spite of the habits of ease which they derive from their natural fertility of their own country in the open air beneath a burning sun, with scarcely as much clothing upon them as modesty required. 
He has seen them faint beneath the pressure of their labors. He has seen them return to their smoky huts in the evening with nothing to satisfy their hungry but a scanty allowance of roots. He has seen the neglect with which their masters have treated their immortal souls, not only withholding religious instruction from them, but in some instances depriving them of access to the means of attaining it. He's seen all the different modes of torture by means of the whip, the screw, the pincers, and the red-hot iron which have been exercised upon their bodies by inhuman overseers. Yes, but not by these only. Our God has seen masters and mistresses educated in fashionable life sometimes take the instruments of torture into their own hands and deaf to the cries and shrieks of their agonizing slaves exceed even the overseers in cruelty. Though you have been deaf to their cries and shrieks, shrieks they have been heard in heaven. That was the introduction. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, I know you're suffering and he hears. God's with you. God is with you. He knows, he hears. One day he will deliver you. But he's not really calling for social action or anything like that. He's just kind of calling for a holy patience and a trust in God to deliver. Now, a few years later, another pastor, Reverend David Walker, one of Boston's most prominent black clergy, went to the same book and gave a very different sermon. Because Reverend Walker disagreed with Reverend Jones's vision of reform. He wanted it now, and he felt that they should revolt. And here's just a little bit from his. But is not the Lord an oppressed and suffering people among them? Has not the Lord an oppressed and suffering people among them? Does the Lord condescend to hear the cries and see their tears in consequence of oppression? Will he let the oppressors rest comfortably and happy always? Will he not cause the very children of the oppressors to rise up against them? I wanted to point this out to you because I think this is so important is that God calls us to respond to his calling in different ways. And actually, this is the history of of the whole black church for 400 years. You've got these two approaches in tension. You have one wanting to be very kind of conservative, one wanting to be very aggressive. The other thing I want to point out before we end is that we've got to be careful when we read ourselves into a story and let it read us to make sure that we're not reading it the wrong way. And I'll end with this illustration. The Puritans. The Puritans' favorite book, Cotton Mather's favorite book, was not Exodus. It was Judges. See, when, when, the, when the blacks read the Bible, they saw themselves as the slaves, and they saw God as liberating them. When Cotton Mather preached to the Puritans, he saw the people in his congregation as the Israelites who had come to America to take the land from the pagans. And that led to some 
not very Christian ways of treating the indigenous people that already lived here. So I point that out too, because look at what's happened. Three different, very prominent early American leaders are reading the Old Testament and fighting guidance. Two of them find it out of Exodus with very different approaches. And one of them finds it out of Judges and essentially finds rationale for genocide. So we need to be careful how we read these texts. But we also need to realize that God will lead us to respond in different ways. So let's pray. Lord, I pray first of all for anybody here tonight um, who you've been tugging at. You've been calling them to confront injustice somehow, somewhere, small or big. And like Moses, maybe they have eight reasons why that's a bad idea. I pray that you would encourage them and that they would respond to that call. And I pray for any Aaron that's here tonight. You probably know who you are. You're not called to lead something, but you are called to support another person's leadership. And I pray that you would be to that Moses what Aaron was to the first one. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord.